0: Good morning. It is so good to be together on the first day of the week. If you're visiting, we are thankful you're here. We hope you'll stay around afterwards that we can meet you and greet you and be back tonight at six o'clock as we continue our worship together. There we go. Why should everyone want to go to heaven? Have you ever sat and pondered eternity? The fact that you and I will live forever somewhere. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 says that we have been created in the image of God. And primarily, I think that has reference to the fact that we have a soul. Animals don't do that. Animals don't have that. We are different from animals that way. I am a soul. And as a soul, I will never cease to exist I will live forever, either in heaven or in hell, Matthew twenty five forty six. and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. This morning, we're going to be talking about heaven and seven reasons why everyone should want to go there. A teacher was drilling her class about the gospel and about salvation, and she asked them, she said, If I sold everything that I owned and I gave the money to the church, would that get me to heaven? And the whole class, little kids, they responded uh, spontaneously and they said, no. And she said, well, what if I clean my house every day and I mowed the yard and I planted flowers and I made my home beautiful, would that get me to heaven? And once again, you know how kids can be, everyone shouted, no. And she said, well, what if I was kind to animals and I was polite to my friends and I love my family, would that get me to heaven? And the answer again was a resounding, no. And the teacher said, then how can I get to heaven? And a little boy who was new to Sunday school that week shouted out the answer from the back and he said, you have to be dead. (laughs) Well, sometimes out of the mouths of babes. A 2021 Pew Research poll said that 73% of Americans believe in heaven, and that was surprising to me that the number was that high, but as I continued to read, it said heaven means different things to different people, and as I got to thinking about that, I thought that makes better sense. People believe in heaven, but not the heaven of the Bible, not necessarily what is the truth about heaven. They just have some concept of existence when this life is over. Amongst U.S. Christians, 58% say that multiple religions can go to heaven. That is, you don't even have to be of a Christian religion. You can be a Muslim. You can be a Jew. And within that group, 43% of them believe that non-Christians, or I should back up, 58% say multiple religions, that is, variations of Christianity can go to heaven, and within that group, 43% of them say that non-Christians can go to heaven, that is, Muslims and Jews and varieties of religions. Obviously, there's a lot of confusion about heaven. For the next several minutes this morning, we're going to discuss seven reasons why everyone Should want to go to heaven. And I have made up a chart to help us as we go. And I've done something that's interesting. If you will notice the color of the background of each point, it is representative of Revelation chapter 21 and verse 19. And this is the colors of the foundation of the wall. The Bible says in Revelation 21, 19, the foundations of the wall of the city of heaven were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second was sapphire, and so forth. And so each color is going to represent a jewel in the wall of the foundation of the city. Now, here is our first point. Why should everyone want to go to heaven? And that is, heaven is real. It is a real place. In John chapter 14 and verse 2, Jesus said, In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Friends, heaven is a real place. A lot of people don't understand that. They don't believe that heaven is real. They think that it's allegorical. But that's not true. It is a real place but it is not a physical place. I want to ask you this question. If you could go back 200 years in time, and you were talking to Native American Indians, and you were describing to them an airplane, how would you do that? How would you describe an airplane? You probably wouldn't talk about turbines, and you probably wouldn't talk about aluminum because they have no concept of that. And so you would probably speak in language they could relate to. You would probably say something like, imagine a a, a bird, a giant bird, and you could ride on its back. You would use imagery that their mind understood. So how does God describe heaven to us? I think in similar terms, he uses imagery, terms that we can relate to. And so he takes things that we hold as beautiful and valuable, and he describes heaven that way. Not that heaven is literally made of gold or jewels, but he describes it that way. He says the walls of the city are going to be made of jasper, and the gate of the city is made of pearls. Not uh, many pearls, but one single giant pearl. And he says, the streets are made of gold. I want you to think about this. How do we value gold? We think of gold as something that people would die for, people would kill for. We could imagine it being described to to say that in heaven, our bank account will be filled with gold. Or in heaven, our house will be full of gold. The thing that men die for here in heaven is just pavement. It's just something that you walk on. I heard an illustration about a man who was very rich, and before he died, he packed a suitcase filled with gold. And when he died, he talked to the angels, and he said, I want to take this suitcase with me to heaven. And the angels told him, well, that's not allowed. You can't take a suitcase to heaven. And he begged them and begged them, and finally, they relented. And so he got to heaven, and the angels were so very curious. When he left his room, they went in, and they unzipped the suitcase. And one of the angels said to the other, Wow, it's nothing but pavement. Kind of interesting. You know, it's that good. That's the imagery the Lord is trying to give us. And that is gold. Something that we value so much here is something that you just walk on in heaven. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 2 The book of Revelation says that it has been signified to us. In the word signified, you see the word sign. That means it is not literal. It is symbolic. It is language to help us understand. Brother G.C. Brewer, great preacher from years gone by, he told about a man that he knew years ago. This man was an elder in the church. But he began to study the Bible with sort of a literalistic and materialistic view of the spirit world. And when he read that heaven is a city that lies four square, 12,000 furlongs in every way, he consulted the encyclopedia to find out what a furlong is. And then he reduced the dimensions of heaven to terms that he was acquainted with, and he estimated the number of square miles in the city of heaven. And he determined that heaven is 1,500 square miles. And then he reduced it to square feet. And he estimated the amount of space it would take for one soul in eternity. And then by the process of mathematics, he determined how many souls heaven could contain. And he thought that he knew exactly how many people could be saved. And so he compared that to the vast billions of people who have lived in the past and those who are living now. And he determined that the number of people that could go to heaven was so small and so negligible that it just didn't amount to anything. And as a result of that, he gave up his faith and he said, there was no use in trying to be saved. Brother Brewer went and talked to this man. And he said he knew that it would be a mistake to try to explain to this man that he's not looking at this right. You can't measure the great spirit world with material meaning. And so he approached it this way. He said, brother, you have made a mistake in your calculations. He said, because you have only figured on the ground floor of the city. You've got to remember that the walls of the city are 1,500 miles high. He said, now, if you were to put another floor every 10 feet and you run your stories up 1,500 miles and then you multiply by the number of floors, the number of people that are going to be in heaven is a much higher percentage than you've estimated. Now, of course, that was foolish, but it stunned the man. And his eyes opened wide and he said, We can get almost the whole human race in heaven with that kind of calculation. Now, what's the point? It's not literal. That's not the way it is. You can't think of heaven that way. You can't calculate it that way. I read another story about a boy who was born blind. And after several years of blindness, the doctors were permitted to perform a very delicate operation which would enable this teenager to see. After the surgery surgery was over, the boy was taken to the window and they removed the bandages and he beheld God's big and wonderful and beautiful world for, for the very first time. And he turned to his mother and he said, Mama, this is amazing. Why didn't you tell me how beautiful it really is? And she said, Darling, I tried, but I couldn't. She said, It was impossible to describe to one who was born blind the beauties of this world, just how beautiful it really is. And brethren, so it shall be when we reach heaven. God has described it to us, but our minds, I cannot envision how wonderful it will be. Heaven is real. A second reason that we want to go to heaven is because of the word reunion. A month or so ago, I posted on Facebook and I asked the question, what do you look forward to about heaven? And over and over and over, I had a couple of hundred responses, but over and over and over, the answer was given to see my husband, to see my wife, to see my children, to see my parents. I believe one of the sweetest things about heaven is going to be the reunion. I believe one of the most touching songs we ever sing is, if we never meet again, this side of heaven, I will meet you on that beautiful shore. You know, in Genesis 25 and verse 18 Listen how the Bible describes the death of Abraham. Genesis 25, 8, rather. It says, Then Abraham gave up the ghost, and he died in a good old age, an old man full of years. Now listen to this. And he was gathered unto his people. What does that mean? He was gathered unto his people. That phrase, or one very similar to it, is used to describe the death of Ishmael in Genesis 35. Jacob in Genesis 49, Moses and Aaron in Deuteronomy 32. What does that mean? He's gathered unto his people. Some people have said, well, that just means he was buried in the sepulcher of his people. That's not what it means because you might recall that Moses was buried in a secret place in the valley of Moab, far from the sepulcher of his people. So what does it mean that he died and he was gathered unto his people? Brethren, it is a reference to the fact that he died and he went to be with his people, his loved ones. It is a reunion after death. You know, in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 23, David was grieving over the death of the child that he had with Bathsheba. And in verse 23, he said, can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David had in mind a time when he was going to see that child again. He was going to have a reunion, and he was looking forward to that when this life is over. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I have used these words, I think, in every funeral I have ever preached. It describes Christians who had lost loved ones to death. And verse 13 says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, dead. That you sorrow not even as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus rose again, even so them which are asleep in Jesus, those who have died as Christians, God will bring with him. Verse 18, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. That is, he said, you're going to see them again. Take comfort in that. There's going to be a reunion. Don't sorrow like people who are not Christians because Christians are going to have a reunion. I remember hearing Brother Winkler tell a story. Wendell Winkler told a story years ago. He said he was on an airplane going to preach a gospel meeting in Ohio. And he said there was a soldier who was sitting next to him who was returning from the Gulf War. And as they got to talking, this soldier told Brother Winkler that he had a a son who had been born while he was overseas and he had never met him before. And he said he was so anxious and he talked about this and he was so looking forward to it. And somehow that news kind of spread throughout the plane. And he said when the plane landed, no one stood up and they waited for this soldier to stand up and get his bags. And he said he ran down the aisle and then everyone else got up to leave the plane. And Brother Winkler said when he came out, he saw that soldier holding that that boy, embracing him, kissing his family. And Brother Winkler said he thought to himself, this is what heaven's going to be like. But you know, not only that, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11, Jesus said, and I say unto you that many will come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? It means we're going to commune with the great heroes of the faith from days gone by. I'll get to talk to Moses about Mount Sinai. I'll get to talk to Peter about walking on the water and Paul about being stoned to death and Abraham about sacrificing his son and and Joseph and, and, of course, I'll commune with the Lord. So very many times I have envisioned the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for me as we did just a moment ago on a weekly basis for decades. I have envisioned the blood I have thought about the body, I have considered the suffering, but friends, on that day, we will meet him face to face. I'll see the Father, I'll see the Holy Spirit, the Father who planned for me, who gave his Son for me, the Holy Spirit who so often made intercession for me as I prayed, and we will sing together in heaven the new song. Can you imagine the singing in heaven? You know, we go to Polishing the Pulpit each year, and you will have 5,000 Christians singing, and it is just amazing to hear that. In South Carolina, we used to have a Carolina Men's Fellowship, and you would have hundreds of men from North and South Carolina singing. It was an amazing thing just to hear those male voices. Very unique. I want you to imagine when all the imperfections of the human voices are gone... And we join with the angels to sing praises to God. You know, one of the objections that sometimes people make about the idea of a reunion in heaven is they say, if we're going to know each other in heaven, and I know that one of my loved ones is not there, I couldn't possibly be happy. You know, if my wife is not in heaven, I wouldn't be happy there. Or if my mother is not in heaven, then I don't want to live there. One man said he couldn't be happy in heaven if he realized that there was suffering in the other place. But, you know, people don't have any trouble here on this earth being happy, and yet there's suffering all around us, and there's want and woe and, and sin and trouble. But we go on and live in good homes, and we enjoy life. But when we think about heaven... All of a sudden, we're concerned about the suffering, and we say we couldn't possibly be happy there. Friends, what's the answer to this? You know, as Jesus said to the Jews of his day, you do err not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. God will wipe away all tears. I don't know how that works, but he is able to do it. I want to go to heaven because it's real. Number two, I want to go to heaven because of the reunion. Number three, I want to go to heaven because of the resurrected body. I think about this a lot. You know, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50 says, Flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 44 says, The body, that is the physical body, is sown in corruption. The resurrected body is sown in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. What does that mean? Well, when he says our resurrected body will be incorruptible, that means it doesn't wear out. It doesn't die. It doesn't get old. The resurrected body is going to be glorious. You know, there are many things about this body that are not glorious, but not so with the resurrected body. He says it will be raised in power. Our current bodies get weak, they get tired, but the resurrected body won't be that way. It will be a spiritual body. You know, I have oftentimes thought to myself, if I had known on May the 6th of 2019, that that would be the last time that I would be able to walk. I would have run, I would have jumped, I would have leaped, I would have run until I couldn't run anymore. But you know, one thing that keeps going through my mind is I'm going to walk again one day. I'm going to have a resurrected body, and I look forward to that. When I first began preaching, I preached in Fayette County, Alabama, and once a month we would go to the nursing home and we would sing, and inevitably, a song that we would sing every single month was never grow old. I have heard of a land on the faraway strand; tis a beautiful home of the soul, built by Jesus on high. There we never shall die; tis a land where we never grow old. They always wanted to sing that song. The older I get, the more I understand that. Sometimes people will say to me, "Don, you're not. The, you're only fifty years old. You're not that old." I looked this up recently to see what is considered old. It was kind of interesting. It said millennials consider old to be once you turn 59. Generation Xers consider old to begin at 65. Boomers and the silent generation say you're not old until you get 73. See how it keeps getting pushed older and older? And if you're older than 73 this morning, I don't know what to say except you're just old according to everybody. <laughs> I remember hearing an older gospel preacher, I guess he was in his 80s, he he'd battled cancer. I heard him in one of his last sermons and he said, brethren, I am ready to go home. And he wasn't talking about his house. He was saying, I'm tired, it is time to go home. We look forward to... To that resurrected body when the pain of this body is gone. Number four, heaven is going to be a place of relief. In Job 14 and verse 1, Job said, man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Every one of us is either heading into trouble, we're currently experiencing trouble, or we're coming out of trouble. That is the nature of life. You know, the week before last, we baptized Devin Grove, 26 years old. He'd been shot three times by his roommate. The story was that he had a roommate and his roommate came home drinking and Devin wouldn't put up with that. And he said, you've got to leave. I'm not going to have you living with me if you're drinking. And as he tried to make him leave, his roommate went and got a Glock and shot him three times. As a result of that, he's got a shattered bone in his arm He's got a bullet in his neck and his spinal cord has been nicked. You see things like that in this life. In fact, I remember when I was in the hospital in the room next to me, there was a man who had been a mechanic and he was present in a truck fire. As a result of this, he had burns all over his body. His legs had been amputated. In fact, we don't even have to go that far. We've all seen the effects of cancer and ALS and accidents. And chronic pain, and I guess the worst of all pain that that I've seen in this life is that of death. When we think about a person who has lost a spouse or a child or someone near us, there is no more pitiful sight than to see a widow or a widower who has lost their mate of 50 years and you watch them walk down the aisle at the funeral and their legs nearly buckle because of the sorrow I have had many of them tell me over the years, I am so ready to go. But Revelation 24, 21 in verse 4 says, And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things have passed away. Let me move on here. I'm getting along. Number 5. Heaven is a place everyone should want to go because it's a place of rest. Now, heaven is described by different terminology in the Bible. Hebrews 11 and verse 16 calls it a country. Matthew 10 and verse 7 calls it a kingdom. John 14, 1 through 3 calls it the Father's house. But Hebrews 3, 11 and 4, 1 and 4, 3 describe it as a rest. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 7 says, To you who are troubled... Rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Philippians 1 and verse 21, Paul said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What could possibly make a person say something like that? For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain? He says in verse 22, But if I live on the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, that is, it's going to be good for you, it's going to be good for the church. He said, but I am hard pressed between two things, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. That is, Paul was saying, for me to stay here and work, that's good for the church. He said, but brethren, I am ready to rest. I am ready for the glories of heaven. This life is hard. He had suffered many things. And so he says in Galatians 6 and verse 9, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. That is, don't stop. Rest is coming. I remember when I was in the military and we would do PT. I was stationed at Goodfellow Air Force Base in San Angelo, Texas, And they had a runway, but that base had been transformed to a training base, and so they didn't land planes there anymore. And so what they used the runway for was PT. And so we would go out in that Texas heat, and they would say, for PT today, run to the end of the runway and come back. And so we would get out there, and that pavement was so hot. And I remember just seeing the waves of heat rising off that pavement, and I would be so miserable sometime. I never was a good runner, so I was always at the back of the pack. And I remember sweating and just dripping. And I would just think to myself, if I keep going just a little bit further, and I'm going to have a rest. You think about a traveler who's tired, and he looks to the end of his journey. Or a student who's thinking, I can hang in there. I'm almost done with tests. Or a soldier who can't wait to get home or a a patient who's sick with cancer, and they're ready to call it an end. You think about these things, and we look forward to a rest. Number six, we should all want to go to heaven because it is a rescue. Now, what do I mean by that? Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What I deserve is hell, but Jesus Christ rescued me from hell. When I posted on Facebook asking people what they look forward to most about heaven, an answer that occurred rather frequently was, not going to hell. And one person responded, and she said, I am sickened by this response. You should not desire, she said, you should desire to go to heaven for its glory, not because you don't want to go to hell. Now, I bring that out not to shame the person who wrote it, in fact, I deleted it so no one would see it, but I wholeheartedly disagree with her. You know, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, "...God demonstrated His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him." What is the point? We've been saved by what Jesus Christ did. Listen to this. Revelation 14 and verse 10 describes the lost. He says, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, and the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. But then what, listen to what he says in verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write this, blessed are the dead, Who die in the Lord from now on. Yea, says the spirit that they may have rest from their labors. What's he saying? He says one group is going to die and go to hell and they will have torment forever and ever. He says, but write this, those who die in the Lord, they'll have rest from their labors. What's the point? He said, there's going to be one group or the other and you will be rescued from one. In fact... 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 6 refers to Jesus as he who gave himself as a ransom for all. He paid the price so I don't have to go to hell. I started this lesson asking you to contemplate eternity. I got to tell you, friends, there is nothing that terrifies me more than the thought of eternity in hell. Imagine opening your eyes and realizing that you are lost forever and there is nothing you can do about it. And that's before you even think about the torment and the fire and the darkness and the separation. Friends, don't, let, don't ever let us downplay the joy of not going to hell. There's only two alternatives. There is heaven and there is hell. And the Lord used the fear and the torment of hell to help drive us toward heaven. I regularly use that when I'm closing a Bible study. And let me tell you something about heaven. Nothing that defiles will ever enter heaven. Revelation 21, 27. You think about the sin that we're surrounded by in this world. You think about the lies, the abuse, the crime, the mistreatment, the betrayal, the temptations, the ungodliness. None of that will be in heaven. Here's the last one. Heaven is a place of reward. Reward. Matthew 5, 12, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. First Peter 5 and verse 4, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. 1 Timothy 4, 8, Finally there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me on, on that day, and not to me only, but also to all those who love his appearing. Occasionally the question is raised, Will there be degrees of reward in heaven? Brethren, I believe that there will. I did a sermon recently, and I talked about degrees of punishment in hell. I think likewise there'll be degrees of reward in heaven. If not, what's the point of Matthew six nineteen through 21? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3 says... They that turn many to righteousness will shine as the stars forever. If the reward is going to be the same for everybody, what's the point of saying those who turn many to righteousness? If those who turn few are going to have the same reward. Revelation 14 and verse 13, John says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yea, says the Spirit, that they may rest from the labor their labors. Now listen to this part. And their works follow them. What is the point? They're going to get a reward. They're going to have a rest. And their works follow them. Friends, if there were a land where there was no sickness, everybody would want to go there. If there was a place where there was no death, everyone would want to go there. If there was a place where there, were no, there, were, there was no tears and no suffering, everyone would want to go there. But friends, heaven has all of that. I want you to take just a moment. I'm, I'm wrapping up. Take just a moment. I want you to think of the most beautiful place you have ever seen. Can you envision it? Was it maybe watching the sunset go down on the Grand Canyon? Several years ago, I got to go to Victoria Falls in Zambia, Africa, the greatest, largest waterfall in the world. Absolutely beautiful. I've been to Australia. I've seen some of the most beautiful sights in the world on the island of Tasmania. San Francisco Bay, though there's a lot of sin in San Francisco, it is a gorgeous place. Maybe you've gone out into the country and you've stared up into the starry sky and you've pondered the universe. Friends, heaven is going to make all of that pale in comparison. I want you to think about the happiest moment that you've had in your life. Maybe you think about it was the day of your wedding and you looked at your bride. Maybe it was the day that your child was born and you first held him in your arms. Maybe it was that... First grandbaby. Maybe it's a family gathering, and you all sat together on a holiday, and you laughed, and you reminisced, and you wished that that joy would never end. Friends, all of that is going to pale in comparison when we think about the joys of heaven. On the day that we enter into heaven, we no doubt will say like the queen of Sheba, the half has not yet been told trying to describe what they had studied in Bible class that morning. A little boy told his mother, he said, at the close of the day, after God and Enoch had walked and talked together as good friends should and do, Enoch turned to God and said, Lord, it's late. I need to go home. And then God turned to Enoch and said, No, Enoch, you can go home with me. Ruth Anna Metzger was a professional singer, and she tells a story in which she was asked to sing at the wedding of a very wealthy man. According to the invitation, there was going to be a reception that was going to be held after the wedding. It was going to be on the top floors of Seattle Columbia's tower. It was going to be a ritzy affair. Fancy clothes, glass and brass staircases, high dollar food, uh, big name attendees. Well. As they approached the maitre d', the elevator came to the top floor. She and her husband got off. The maitre d' said, may I have your name, please? She said, I am Ruth Anna Metzger, and this is my husband, Roy. He searched the M's, and he said, I'm not finding that. Can you spell it? Ruth Anna spelled her name slowly. After searching the book, the maitre d' looked up, and he said, I'm sorry, ma'am, but your name isn't here. She said, There must be some mistake. She said, I was the singer at the wedding. And the gentleman replied, Ma'am, it doesn't matter who you are or what you did, if your name is not in the book, you cannot attend the banquet. And he motioned to the waiter, Please show these people to the service elevator. And he did. The waiter led Ruthanna and Roy to the service elevator. He ushered them in, and he pushed G for the parking garage. After they located their car, they drove several miles in silence. Roy reached over, and he put his hand on Ruthanna's arm, and he said, Sweetheart, what happened? And she said, When the invitation arrived, I was busy. And she said, I never bothered to RSVP. And she said, Besides that, I was the singer, Surely, I thought that I could go to the reception without returning the RSVP, and Ruthanna started to weep. Friends, there is no doubt that when the bridegroom comes, there are going to be many similar situations, people who thought that they would be allowed in, but they will not because they had not RSVP, they had not responded to the gospel, and they had not Obeyed the Lord. Heaven is a wonderful place. Surely heaven will be worth it all, but we will only go if we have properly prepared ourselves. This morning, the way you do that is by obedience to the gospel, hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. Maybe this morning you want to do that. We are ready to assist you. Maybe you're here today as a member of the church and you need to make some changes in your life. Maybe you want to confess public sin. Maybe you desire the prayers of your brethren on your behalf. We would be honored to do that. This morning, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we invite you to come. As Together we stand and sing the invitation song.